We find people that basically can't make enough uh, to, to, to eat before they go into the fields. I don't believe that. I think that you're looking at other places that are not Central Romana. People actually who focus on and go like getting an orgasm never get one. Pull up your socks and figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> Any chance we'll ever get to be a completely red Oh, yeah. And well, the future is always uncertain. We're more uncertain now. And listen, Blue Ivy is six years old. Beyonce's baby. She tried to outbid me on a painting. Everybody in Atlanta right now at the Louis Vuitton store, if you black, and don't go to Louis five, Vuitton today. Four. That's three, why you need to take a meeting two, with Kanye West, Bernard Arnault. Hello, and welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast on billionaires. Uh, this is a special, special episode, and joining me are my Cheech and Chong fanatics, the Snoop Dogg friends, the, the THC in Grubstakers. Steve Jeffries. Sean P. McCarthy. Andy Palmer. And today we're going to be doing our 420 episode. And That's right. If, Hell yeah. If we were a more serious uh, podcast we would have recorded this on like 419 maybe put it out on 420 but no 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 your boys are committed to the cause of 420 and we're making sure to really stretch our limits on when we can record this episode yeah 420 episode at grub stakers means recorded on 420 not right. released on 420 correct yeah we were gonna release the podcast on time but then we got high <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're having fun over here. That's, this is what we're going for. And, uh, you know, we want our f listeners to know that uh, this is, you know, our 420 special. We plan on doing that every year. We're really trying to chill out with the, with the listeners and really get into some cool stuff about 420, if you know what I mean. Yeah, usually usually our podcast is pretty dark and depraved, and that's not that's not always a good vibe. And we want to we wanna bring you guys, like, for 420, a chill vibe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You feel me? Like, we want you to be able to, like, toke up, hang back, and just listen to an episode of your third favorite podcast. Right. And, like, before we even go further in this episode, I would recommend the listeners get, like, super high. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, just the kind of high where you're you're going to go down a dark, paranoid spiral if we, <laughs> we start talking about any unchill things. Like, get, get high like you're listening to it on the same day that we recorded it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really commit to the bit. By the way, we did. Yeah, I'm gonna try to. Uh, I'm gonna try to bring the chill. I'm, I'm pretty chill right now. I was, I was up 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 late last night celebrating 420. <laughs> I was uh, I was posting on Stormfront.org in celebration of Adolf Hitler's birthday. Nice, nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, solid 420 move, bro. Stephen, how are you celebrating your 420? Uh, I'm. Well, let's see. Um. I, you know, this generation of ours, it's the greatest. Oh, yeah. Mm. Right? And mm, that's like, we've got, bro. we've got legal drugs now in mm -hmm, our mm -hmm. state of New York anyway. Oh, yeah. Hopefully the rest of the country soon. Indeed. Yeah. You know what I like about legal drugs is they're going all the way to corporate America. <laughs> So for our 420 episode, we decided to bring you guys some of the best, strongest facts about 420. 
And uh, to open this bad boy up, let's get our main man, Steve, the Long Drags Jeffries, to really get into some good 420 dirt. Guys, before we start, though, I do have one question. Mm-hmm. What if Adolf Hitler smoked weed? Oh, shit. <laughs> Imagine, like, like you go back in time and you don't kill him. You just get him high. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then he'd be like, damn, man, the Jews are people. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what happens if you give Adolf Hitler weed. He is the top student at the Vienna School of Art. They <laughs> should... Given the Venus School of Art uh, Chancellor weed. <laughs> Dude, just like art student Hitler who like gets laid and smokes pot. <laughs> just like <laughs> hanging out with Trotsky in Vienna. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just having a good time. Dropping tabs. <laughs> and then he you know, later later gets killed by the communists. <laughs> creating so-so landscape. Oh, yeah. You know they don't they don't report on this because of because of big pharma, but I'm pretty sure that weed can cure having a a penis that's fused to your leg. <laughs> Dude, the deepest cut is is Hitler was a communist agent the whole time, <laughs> so he was sent to infiltrate the Nazi Party as an agent of the communists, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then he uh, took over the German military on behalf of the Soviet Union and uh, ordered that there were to be were to be no strategic withdrawals. <laughs> So that German forces would constantly be surrounded and cut off uh, so that uh, the Soviets could dominate the Eastern Bloc of Europe. Based. Yep. This is Hitler every day. I don't know why Stone Hitler is hilarious to me. Like, at no point am I like, that's a guy I could have a beer with. But for some reason, Stone Hitler, I'm like, you know what? If you really wanted to play Contra, I'd be like, okay, one, maybe one or two rounds. But once you're out of lives, you're out, buddy. This is like, this isn't an episode. This is where workshopping my new 20 minutes of stand-up <laughs> when I get back is what if instead of Hitler's doctor giving him meth, right. he gave him weed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, you know, he'd have to deal with like a part where he's like, I'm smoking too much. I got to fucking cut back, bro. I'm not going to get my art degree with all this weed in my system. And he goes sober and, you know, he goes to rehab and this is what happens. Man, this is some bullshit. Marijuana is not a drug. I used to suck dick for coke. I seen them. Now that's an addiction, man. You ever suck some dick for marijuana? And then Hitler's like, you know what? Maybe I'm not smoking that much. Maybe I can cool Maybe it. we all need some, a little bit of Lebensraum, man. <laughs> Wait. I'm sure we've got at least one listener who smoked dick for weed. <laughs> yeah. Wait, here's here's my impression of, of Adolf Hitler hitting the bong. Mm-hmm. Can I get a, little, get a little sound effect? Yeah, we got it. I think the generals are plotting against me, man. <laughs> They're trying to assassinate me, dog. Yeah, how do you break it to Hitler if he like gets all his paranoia and is like, I think everyone hates me. <laughs> like he can't be like, no, Hitler. Come on. Come on, Come Hitler. On. Come down to the bar. Stoop some women. Have fun, Hitler. Yeah, there must have been some people at some point that were like, you know, when Hitler's being a drag, we we got to take him out to really <laughs> loosen that guy up. Because I, you know, 
uh, he, he keeps cutting his hair weird like this other guy. And I honestly, I just, I just am worried about him, you know? <laughs> Actually, the, uh, the July plot was intended to restore vibes to Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Hitler became an anti-Semite when a Jewish guy sold him a dub that was just 0.7 grams. <laughs> But this is our 420 special episode. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is Peak Grubstakers. This is Dark Morning Zoo. Oh, yeah. We are here to celebrate 420 and do an episode about what everybody <laughs> thinks about when they think 420. And I believe Steve has the first bit of research into that. Right. Well, um, so right. The four, the four twenty I know, is the one where you think questions like, so we all know Hitler was a powerful dictator, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But did you also know that he was insanely wealthy? I, I did not know that. <laughs> I, I did not know that he was insanely wealthy. Yeah, I mean. Um, he's got this whole, this whole sob story about growing up poor, Aww. but actually he, um, he has a, he's very underappreciated as a grifter who became wealthy. Really? Yeah. So prior to 1921, essentially when Hitler first became party leader of the NISDAP, um, Nazi party, he was, that was basically, um, you know, he was a soldier in the German army in World War One. Mm -hmm. He was a kind of drifting around from various shelters after his mother passed away and he ran out of income doing odd jobs. And but finally, though, so after the war and when he's later becomes an intelligence agent, uh, he's so he's he's tasked with infiltrating what would later become the Nazi party. And as the story goes, he eventually just stays and becomes member number 555 of the Nazi party. And it's at this point that about a year into his tenure as the party leader in 1921, he starts giving himself some pretty ridiculous salaries as the party, as the party leader. Mm-hmm. I like to imagine the people who actually like lit one up in expectation of the 420 episode are slowly realizing <laughs> <laughs> what this episode is actually about right now. By the way, uh, what what number did you say Hitler was? Five five four. Five five five. Five five five. Did did you know <laughs> that they actually uh, put this is true? They I think the first five was added there to make it look like they had 500 more members than they actually did. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. mm. Which is the kind of idea you get on weed. <laughs> did you know that that chill Vienna art student Hitler, he had them uh, change his registration number to 420, <laughs> even though there weren't 420 members in the party? Even though that wasn't a thing yet. Right, right. It's true, actually. You know, 420... You know, 420 used to be a national holiday in Germany before neoliberalism. <laughs> they were much more tolerant of marijuana. Yeah. 
Originally, the German Workers' Party was about getting high. Oh, yeah. But Germany, uh, well, the party changed after Hitler got there. What? Yeah, unfortunately. I was going to win on the Eastern Front, but then I got high. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to think anyone that's like that, like, dense, just like, what? When Hitler joined, that's when Germany changed? Like, they have no idea. This is Hitler watching a cowboy movie with his fellow Nazis uh, showing Manifest Destiny where they go into the West and kill everyone. Bro, we should we should do that. <laughs> we could do that. We could do that in Russia, bro. I'm telling you, man, it's going to work. So prior, prior to him being party leader, like I was saying, he was pretty much working class. But once, he, once this guy got his shot... And he really didn't look back. There's a Hamilton song about that. What? There's a Hamilton song about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, His initial source of wealth, funnily enough, was from, well, he he basically was a poster who finally got his book deal. Oh, really? And so he wrote his book, Mein Kampf, and while he was in jail from doing a failed um, coup attempt... It was originally on Substack. <laughs> yeah. He moved over to Substack and uh, they paid him a ridiculous signing bonus. No, but, um, you know, if you, um, if you read the first letter of each chapter of Mein Kampf, it smells, spells out smoke weed every day. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you might be pulling out your copy of Mein Kampf and being like, no, it doesn't, but that's the translation, bro. Mm-hmm. That's right. right. That's right. They're hiding the truth from you, bro. Got to read it in the original German. Mm-hmm. The CIA doesn't want you to know that Adolf Hitler smoked weed. <laughs> He wrote this in 1923, partly while he was in jail, and then the party helped him. For pot. Initially <laughs> for pot money. But then later the party helped him publish it, and it got very little attention for the first couple of years until he started making like regular appearances as the party leader, and their, their uh, votes, in, uh, votes in the right stead started to pile up. But later on, it became one of the main... One of the main ways in which the Nazi party got revenue. Mm-hmm. And um, so according to this Smithsonian documentary called Hitler's Riches, uh, one of the people who have, who kind of like, one of the, one of the historians who, of this book said, quote, to be frank, it wasn't a very good read. <laughs> <laughs> As like explaining it's low, it's, as the understatement of of last century right right um trying to explain its low revenue numbers but eventually as he got more sort of experience as a speaker and people recognized him as like a national level leader um the he would eventually go on to earn the equivalent of 6.5 million just from the book Hmm. for his like he was earning 10 percent royalties from the book and then the party got the rest and he got about six point twelve. And in Deutschmarks, that was at the time that was probably about what twelve trillion. <laughs> uh, I can back out of that number back into Deutschmarks if you want. <laughs> it's hard enough to get into dollars. I want the ones where they had to buy bread with the with the wheelbarrow full. 
I want to share an important idea I just had. All right, so imagine like a, a historical Seth Rogen buddy comedy. <laughs> Seth Rogen plays like a weed smoking like California Jew in the 1930s. Sure, of course. And you know how like um, in medieval times, the the leaders of armies would sometimes duel and then uh, that would determine who wins the battle rather mm -hmm. than having the armies actually fight one another. Right, right. So Seth Rogen his character in this movie flies to Germany and has a smoke-off with Adolf Hitler <laughs> to determine if the Holocaust happens or not. And if he can outsmoke Hitler, then there's no Holocaust. Right, of course. That's already a better movie than Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> and I like Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, I mean, Sean, that movie is great because if Seth Rogen stops the Holocaust... He then comes back to a world where he might not be a celebrity. He's just another guy. There's like montages of Adolf Hitler doing like weed training over the uh, Hearst Weasel song. <laughs> over Nazi marching songs. He's just like hitting these, these multi-chamber gravity bongs to prepare his lungs for facing Seth Rogen. Ah yes, the famous beer hall putsch. Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles. I'm picturing archival footage of Hitler giving a speech, but there's like three different bongs on the table next to him. He's just—it's like a—he's doing—he's doing a hit between each like stanza of his speech, basically. They shoot it like uh, Lenny Riefenstahl style, with the the cameras on cranes. <laughs> <laughs> The overhead shots of, of bongs being hit. The, a, a Nazi leader has to like put his joint in the other hand to do the informal heil. <laughs> it's like it's like the Nuremberg mass rally where they all take a hit and they exhale and there's like a swastika of marijuana smoke <laughs> wafting over the Nuremberg. How did they, oh, by, how did they right, make it way, into a did swastika? I, did I tell you guys that... Um, I've actually been to the the Nuremberg parade grounds. Um, it's it's still there, and you can go up to the platform that Hitler was on, um, and there's like a plaque or something. And I remember being there, and not on the platform, but just a little ways away from it, and then looking over at the platform. And there was a lady standing there, not reading the plaque, just like looking out and clearly imagining what it must have been like to be the one <laughs> speaking there. Jeez. I want to go there and be like, so is anybody here on Tinder? <laughs> <laughs> Just do like a hacky stand-up bit from mm -hmm. that. But with all the Hitler sure. uh, arm gestures. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gesticulations. Mm -hmm. So the, the 6.5 million number is prior to 1933 and becomes chancellor. Then it just skyrockets from there because he's able to get this, to force the state to purchase millions of copies of his book. Hmm. And then, uh, so he pockets that income and he's earning a lot from that just from the book alone. But then he also has like his royalties from just like random, like advertisements and shit that use his face. You, you know what he was smoking? Like his likeness or whatever. When he thought of these good ideas. Reefers. That earned yeah, the, him, those book crop. royalties went on to earn him at least $300 million over his lifespan. Jeez. Wow. He also made a lot on the, the cross-branding Adolf Hitler butane lighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Is a Hitler Zippo. Mm-hmm. Hitler mustache wax, also a big seller. Big seller. I imagine Hitler meeting with like a marketing manager. And he's like, I, I, I'm thinking like this movement. It's about the movement. It's not about any individual person. And then the marketing manager sh- like slips over a piece of paper with the royalties that he would get if he put his face on everything. And he looks at it and does like a cartoon, like, whoa! <laughs> what? Um, the other, so yeah, the, and the book basically made him to begin with. Right. Um, but after that, once he's chancellor and finally the, the Fuhrer, um, he is also getting, he paid himself huge salaries of like several million, like up to 15 million a year was just his salary hmm. in today's dollars. And another thing he did was just make money by not paying taxes. King. So he didn't pay taxes on any of his uh, his book deals uh, after becoming uh, chancellor. Now, you see, that I have a problem with. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hitler, bad guy, right? But did you know that he was wow. a tax evader? Wow. Well, he's the Fuhrer. His word is the law. It's not <laughs> illegal for him to not pay taxes. He's the sovereign, I guess, so you could make a case. But, um, but yeah. So all told, he has a he. It's estimated by some sources that he made around 150 million a year after he became chancellor, mm. and his final, his highest net worth was probably around six to seven billion dollars. What? Yeah. And, you know, with dictators, it's kind of like Forbes doesn't estimate sure. the wealth of dicta- dictators because, like, it's like they have a bunch of shit that's not really in their name. They're just they just make use of it because power. Right. But because uh, because the distinctions might get blurred a little too much for <laughs> their comfort. It's not. Uh, um, it's like debatable if Hitler was his name was like really on all the properties he used. And shit, But like sure. it's he's pretty much a billionaire. Wow. So, therefore, this is a legitimate Grubstakers episode. Hmm. Well, now we have uh, an easy answer whenever someone's like, so who's the worst billionaire we've covered? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. I think people have this uh, they have this view of Hitler as coming, they sort of believe his bullshit mm-hmm. about, like, oh, I just worked really hard and eventually I became, like, recognized for my speaking prowess. And, like, right. well, actually, well... As bad as that, as bad as what he said was, he was also a grifter on top of that. Yeah. And um, it usually just pales in comparison to his crimes, but it was like, I was like, damn, he was a billionaire? I didn't know that. But it obviously makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's like you write a book and then you become the dictator and you can make everybody buy your book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I should, I should mention, uh, one of the things they did was, like, with all the books that he forced the state to buy... Mm-hmm. He gave it away to every newlywed couple. Because oh. mm. they were just like, well, we have like a fucking million books stacked up. What would the Fuhrer want? As I said in the JFK Part 2 episode, and I still believe this, that the idea to buy uh, a bunch of JFK's books to, to juice the New York Times thing, I'm pretty sure Joe Kennedy got that idea from Hitler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I could see it. Uh, it is a, it's a similar concept to New York Times bestseller methodology. Must be difficult to be like a married couple, newly married couple, trying to read Mein Kampf, and you just get too horny to continue. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it's also like you're giving married couples just one copy. Like, what's the other partner supposed to read? That's right. (laughs) There's a special edition of Mein Kampf that he commissioned that has like a special fold-out bud tray where you can break up marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a very, very tiny Hitler music box, and this is what it plays. That's like Hitler's favorite brand of rolling paper. Right. (laughs) It's like a sample is inside. Yeah, you actually get two copies of Mein Kampf, one with the book and one that's hollowed out. (laughs) The only rolling papers that fight Jewish Bolshevism. All right, it's time for us to buckle down and get serious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, I ate half of one of those high powered candies, so we have a hard out when that hits. <laughs> yeah, I got, I have this edible thing that says it's 200 milligrams, and I'm Jeez. like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, how much of this am I supposed to eat? Oh, like one bite? <laughs> how do I? How do I measure out this bite? It is funny how, like, with milligrams, I've done them enough to where part of me is like, oh, how often are you smoking? Only oh, once a month? And how many? How much are you thinking you're thinking? You need 2.8 milligrams. Like, I get very specific when someone's <laughs> like, I don't know how much to take. I'm like, I can, I can probably eyeball it for you based on your weight, height, and just general chill vibe. But so before I start my bit of research here, I do have a little scenario to walk you guys through. You know, it, it's sort of an alternate history. I, we were kicking it around yesterday in the discussion meeting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I think to to understand this alternate history, it's important that we accept the hypothesis that there are infinite universes. Right, of course. So that in every single, it, it, every single possibility in human history is occurring in some alternate universe. Sure, sure. And the scenario that I lay out to you here, there is an alternate universe where this all takes place. If so, you've seen Man in the High Castle, it's, you know... It's one of those. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So this yeah, alternate... It's implied that there's there's all these alternate... Uh, sorry, go on. Yes. No, no, no. This alternate uh, history, alternate universe, uh, somewhere out there, It's it's everything has occurred exactly the way we understand it up until 1941. You know, the Nazis are at war. They've taken power. Mm-hmm. They've sent out uh, these lists to round up, you know, uh, Jewish populations in Poland. More on how they did that later. Yes, the Netherlands, France, they've all rounded them up. They've loaded them into passenger and cattle cars. They've sent. They've told them to pack one suitcase with all their possessions. They're going to be sent to the east to work. Right. They, uh, they get put on these trains. They get sent out to these camps, these work camps. And uh, the trains unload. There's people shouting at them in German, you know, uh, uh, beating them with whips. Right. Uh, there's there's a, a selection, a sorting process on the ramp. And um, these these individuals, many of them are, are told they're going to be taking a shower. So they're asked to undress. They undress. They they go into this, this shower room. The door is sealed shut behind them, and there's pitch blackness. You know, they don't know what's going on. They're scared. There's, there's children crying. But then they hear the faint sound of a gramophone speaker. And it's playing this song. Are you trying to get crazy with this, eh? Don't you know I'm loco? (laughs) And then smoke starts billowing into the chamber. And they're panicking. They're shouting, gas, gas. But no, 
It's actually marijuana smoke mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because you see there's these these keyhole uh, uh, exhausts right. that the SS men go up to and they light these bongs and then they ex they exhale the smoke into the chamber, thereby hotboxing these these shower chambers. And so uh, this this music is played the entire time and they're left in there for like two hours. To just get completely hot boxed, men, women, and children—all of them. Sean, I'd like to um, just kind of address something about what you said. Uh, the word mm-hmm. marijuana actually has uh, uh, racist origins, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. uh, it's it's probably a good idea for us to start phasing out our usage of it. And then, okay, and so and then, the uh, the the gas chambers are opened, and this right. Billowing uh, wave, yeah. Mm-hmm. Billowing marijuana smoke is coming out, and the Sunder Commandos have to like go in and help them like stumble out. <laughs> and the Sunder Commandos lead them to the concert that the Nazis have put on for the inmates. And it's like, you know, it's still Nazis, so it's like Vanilla Ice <laughs> and like Beastie Boys, and like Eminem is headlining. It's mm-hmm. I guess Beastie Boys are Jewish, so they wouldn't be allowed. But you know, just all white rappers. <laughs> Chet Hanks is there. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's loving uh, it. White Boy Summer. It, yeah, it's all White Boy Summer. And so then they, <laughs> they do the concert. <laughs> and all the SS are there partying with them. And then they load them all back onto the trains and send them back to their homelands. But this time they've got like, you know, speakers on loop. Mm-hmm. It's like a party train going back. And everybody gets home and they had a great time. And they're like, wait a minute. They took all our stuff. <laughs> we left all our luggage there. <laughs> They stole all our possessions. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the uh, the alternate universe, the chill Nazis. It really happened like that somewhere. The Zonder Commando with three Zs. <laughs> they put them on a train and take them back. They just, they were actually held. This is one of the groups that was like, they used their office to save right. people. Right. But not before getting them high. You know, if that was only one way that it occurred, you know, people people don't know that there are all these different things. Like uh, Einsatzgruppen would just pull into a small village in Poland. And, you know, people would come out of their houses or maybe stay in their houses terrified of what would happen. And this, mm-hmm. you know, SS officer would walk out of a tank and then reach into the tank and pull out a gramophone and start cranking it. And Dr. Dre would start playing... <laughs> <laughs> and the tanks they they're retrofitted to have um you know to kind of bounce up and down oh yeah uh, definitely um the hydraulics. Yeah, hydraulics. Boy, I couldn't think that word. I was like, I was like, what the fuck is that word? I was like, air pumps. I'm like, no, I don't say air pumps. Hydraulics is the term. That's why I said bounce up and down because I also forgot. <laughs> just imagine this fucking tiger tank doing this. <laughs> just going up and down. The L.A. Cholo hydraulics. Just fucking going up and down. Yeah. This is for La Raza. There's <laughs> just a, there's an SS hype man just throwing pre rolls to the <laughs> get to the village. <laughs> Pumping this. 
That's right. All the Auschwitz guards look like people you saw at Woodstock 99. <laughs> this is a uh, this is actually, and you know, you might be saying, this this scenario is so historically inaccurate. They mm-hmm. didn't have all this music in 1942. And what I would say to that totally valid uh, complaint is actually this scenario is um, the Nazi moon base that really existed and survived the war. <laughs> they did studies there and they found that uh, marijuana and gangster rap music would achieve the exact same <laughs> results. And actually, the Nazis would have won the war had they done this. So this is actually a dystopian future <laughs> where Adolf Hitler conquers Europe through uh, destroying the short-term memory of the Jewish people <laughs> and uh, giving them PTSD because they heard such good music that they can never hear again. <laughs> but anyways, on the subject of the episode, of course, 420, uh, I did want to talk about uh, two uh, very special foundations that have a connection to 420, and that is, of course, the Carnegie and the Rockefeller Foundations. Um, you know, occasionally you'll hear, uh, I've heard Tucker Carlson lament that uh, the billionaires today, they aren't like the billionaires in the old school. Mm-hmm. The billionaires in the old school, they gave back, right. you know? Mm-hmm. They uh, founded libraries and concert halls and museums. And, uh, you know, they really had a sense of noblesse oblige. And I think with the Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundations, you really see that, uh, particularly with the uh, the funding for the research that they did in the uh, the dynamic field known as eugenics and forced sterilizations <laughs> uh, in the United States. Before we get to that, would you say noblesse and bleach? Were you speaking French? What? What? What was that? Uh, it's a term I'm pretty sure it means a sense for rich people to give back. Could oh. not tell you what language it comes from, but, you know, I've heard smart people use it in <laughs> I was sentences. Like, I was like, Sean speaking Latin or tongues, and either way, he thinks he's sounding <laughs> too smart right now. What is going mm. on? Sean, you need to take a hit, bro. <laughs> it's called noblesse oblige, bro. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like over yeah, here learning. I know, like, oh. I know they own every, they have like a lot of money, but they give a lot of it back. <laughs> it's like, it's like what a guy who sells weed at Stanford calls his strains. Yeah. Like trying to outthink himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyways, um, I think uh, the Carnegie and the Rockefeller foundations are both directly tied into the Holocaust. And I think that's pretty interesting because, you know, sort of today we're told the Gates Foundation is this massive give back thing or you know all these billionaires they make up for it with all they do in in charitable works and through their private foundations and it's like once you actually look at any of these foundations all of them are engaged in really horrific shit yeah all of them are engaged in uh expanding the power of their namesake and uh funding some very questionable and uh in this case very evil things so i think there's a lot of instructive lessons for foundations today in just kind of this story And uh, I read this book called Nazi Nexus, America's Corporate Connections to Hitler's Holocaust by Edwin Black. I recommend it a lot. He's the guy who wrote IBM and the Holocaust. Um, It's it's sort of a short summary of American corporate connections. And if Uh, you uh, uh, haven't read, if if you don't have time to read IBM and the Holocaust, you can also read the last chapter of this book. Right. If you're if you want 600 pages done in 30 pages, this is the book for you. Uh, 
But so it just kind of goes through the uh, Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundation's connections um, to the Holocaust. And I'll just kind of start with uh, the basic fact of it is the Nazi conception of race or anti-Semitism, that didn't really exist before the invention of scientific racism. Like, anti-Semitism in the past was based on religion. It was these kind of pogroms and inquisitions against Jews based on their religion, whereas the Nazis invented this racial category of uh, Jews that was irrespective of religious belief. And kind of where they got this basis was Carnegie and Rockefeller Institute-funded uh, race science. Um, you know, to kind of paraphrase, again, the author Edwin Black, where did Hitler get his ideas about eugenics from? From the Carnegie Institute, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Harriman Railroad Trust. You know, this kind of goes back to Charles Darwin and uh, his ideas of survival of the fittest were, uh, let's say, attempted to be applied to humans by uh, racial... Uh, advocates throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, and they found a ready source of funding from both Carnegie and Rockefeller. So are you telling me that, like, Hitler was like, you know what, fuck the Jews, and then he read Carnegie and Rockefeller stuff and was like, you know what, yes, fuck them for life? Or was it more like the ideas that Carnegie and Rockefeller had written about just excelled the the hate that Hitler was standing on? From what I've been able to tell, a lot of it is, you know, uh, a lot of the top Nazis had uh, kind of anti-Semitism more or less programmed into them uh, by their environment, a lot of like attitudes at the time, um, especially from like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion um, was a big influence on that, which was uh, a book printed by the um, the czars. But what the eugenic science did mm -hmm. is it gave them a way to transfer that into something wrapped up in scientific jargon to make mm. it seem like it was um, legitimate. I gotta say though, bro, I know that uh, all this shit's fucked up, but Elders of Zion is my favorite game on PlayStation. I love that <laughs> shit, bro. It's like God of War, but with Jews, it's fucking incredible, bro. Someone's <laughs> like, that name's kind of problematic. And the guy's like, no, we took out the protocols part. <laughs> the Elder Scrolls just, of Zion. It's just Elders. Yeah, Elder Scrolls. Of, <laughs> the Bethesda version, which have so many bugs. <laughs> <laughs> the, the protocols of the Elders of Zion is where they came up with the Puff Puff Pass rule. <laughs> like It's a guide for smoking. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, but so, look, this is the title of a 1911 Carnegie Institute-founded study. Because it was like, you know, um, Andrew Carnegie was steel money, Rockefeller was oil money. It was sort of that they gave money to scientists to conduct these racial studies, these eugenic studies. Um, so this is a 1911 Carnegie-supported study was titled, quote, Preliminary Report of the Committee of the Eugenics Section of the American Breeders Association to Study and Report on the Best Practical Means for Cutting Off the Defective Germplasm in the hum Human Population. Hmm. That's a 1911 Carnegie-funded uh, science paper. And you know the key to um, writing a Carnegie-funded science paper on eugenics? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> you know, when I took my uh, Dale Carnegie class, I was I was really impressed that like when I walked in, like everyone was so diverse. They had this on the radio. Man, 
can't I can't play it that many times. <laughs> we we will get sued. <laughs> of course, to take that class, you had to buy the book How to Win Friends and Sterilize People. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but apparently from these like Carnegie funded papers, I'm quoting from Edwin Black's book, the most commonly suggested method of eugenicide in America was the quote lethal chamber. That is a network of publicly located and operated gas chambers. Wow. So, you know, like all the way back in the early 20th century, uh, Carnegie funded quote unquote science was advocating the mass murder of uh, so-called defective members of the population. Mm. And this resulted in compulsory sterilization laws uh, in California in particular, about uh, 60,000 Americans were forcibly sterilized uh, because, you know, they were considered mentally defective or, or whatever else. Mm. Um, and this was brought on in large part by Carnegie and Rockefeller funded science and studies, but also lobbying and this sort of thing. So really the basis of modern scientific racism was almost entirely funded by Carnegie and Rockefeller. And the story sort of continues where, you know, in 1924, you have a Virginia sterilization law. And there was also obviously a heavy racial basis to a lot of this. You sure. know, these laws that forbid uh, mixed race marriages spring up uh, on a state by state basis around this time. And it starts using like for definitional purposes, all these laws start using scientific racism, which w in turn would become the basis of the Nuremberg laws under the Nazis. <laughs> so you see this entire progression building uh, from America to Nazi Germany. Um in 1927, you have Buck v. Bell is this famous Supreme Court decision where Oliver Wendell Holmes and the rest of the Supreme Court legalized laws forcibly sterilizing uh, mentally retarded people in the United States. And quoting from the book, quote, eugenics would have just been so much bizarre parlor talk had it not been for extensive financing by corporate philanthropies. Yeah, here, here's the thing, though, is that, that you can draw a straight line from that Supreme Court decision to Roe v. Wade. Now, let me tell you guys about <laughs> the Holocaust that occurs every day in America. Yes. Yes, Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist, so that means we should take away choice. <laughs> <laughs> but she did also have this to say. That water bomb's so smooth, you don't realize how high you're getting until it's too late. <laughs> um. But to just kind of continue on with the specifics here, in 1904, Carnegie Funding founds what's called the Cold Springs Lab under director Charles Davenport. He was a famous American eugenicist. Uh, he, in turn, uh, again, with Carnegie Funding, he sets up the Eugenics Records Office, or the ERO, the Eugenics Research Association, and a uh, newspaper publication called Eugenical News, which in 1923 adds the subtitle Current Record of Race Hygiene. And race hygiene was, of course, a term borrowed from the Nazis, who kind of what happens is there's this American eugenics movement, and as the Nazi party gets more and more prominent in Germany, they borrow and kind of mix in their quote-unquote scientific racism and their sorts of terms, particularly the anti-Semitism and the race hygiene stuff. See, I love the spirit of internationalism here. <laughs> uh, the, the publication Eugenical News would begin publishing articles by German race scientists, several of which would go to, on to become death camp doctors. They would publish their articles in the 1920s. Uh, the German publishing house known as Lehman's Verlag uh, is noted by Edwin Black as a nexus between German-American eugenics. It translated many American works to German. Um, 
the publisher, a guy named Julius Lehman, had been with Hitler during the Beer Hall Putsch. Uh, and what I enjoyed about this is it released a series of racial trading cards in <laughs> German with like, you know, baseball cards for the different racial archetypes. And then this was favorably reported on in the U.S. by Eugenical News. Really? Yes. They were like, hey, they got baseball cards for all the races. We should do that, too. Yes, this is a uh, popular wow. trading cards depicting racial profiles from the Tamals of India to primitive Baskirs of the Ural Mountains. Th their availability was fondly reported in Eugenical News. Uh, Eugenical News suggested the cards could be improved if the pictures would reveal more body features. German race <laughs> cards, just like many baseball cards, came 10 to a package. Did they have like s racial statistics on the back? Yes. Jeez. 35, 50 and all that. But, you know, and again, so this is like the leading eugenics publication in America. Every time you think of that, just remember this is Carnegie funded. This is what this is the philanthropy that this steel right. robber mm -hmm. baron was giving back to the world was he was funding the discourse around race science. What a bitch. Like, fuck, you know, because as as naive as I, I, I was to th read Think and Grow Rich and a, and a few other things along those lines. The, the names Carnegie and Rockefeller are so respected in the United States. And it's like, what? You, you literally know nothing about them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And especially that's why you have like this misinformation where people think, you know, they see how shitty billionaires are today. And obviously they are. Right. But there's just this complete fake history that at one point they were better and gave more back when they were literally hiring Pinkertons to murder their own workers and funding race science and... Uh, Joseph Mengele's experimentations, as I'm about to get to. Um, Boy, you really can fucking whitewash history. PR works. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's a lot of things in this country that are broken, but PR, uh-uh, you do it right. Fucking people don't know who you really are. And then to kind of go on to the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, the Kaiser, there's these German institutes called the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes. These are like partly German state funded. They existed throughout the 1920s and into the Nazi regime. And there's three in particular that become directly involved in the Holocaust and Action T4, where the Germans, you know, mass murdered all these disabled people. Uh, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes for Psychiatry is one, for brain research is one, and the one for anthropology, human heredity, and eugenics. All of them received support from the Rockefeller Foundation. All of them were directly involved in the Holocaust. Uh, by 1926, Rockefeller had donated $410,000, or $4 million in today's dollars, to hundreds of German researchers, among them Ernst Rudin, who became an architect of Hitler's medical repression. Uh, to take an example of the uh, Institute for Brain Research, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Brain Research, it operated out of a single room in 1929 when Rockefeller sent them a grant for $317,000 and allowed them to become a giant race studies laboratory. Jeez, wow. Uh, it received several additional Rockefeller grants during the next several years. It was also led by Ernst Rudin. Ernst Rudin argued for, designed, and funded the mass sterilization and killings of adults and children under the Nazis and employed Joseph Mengele. And, you know, in addition to, like, foundations, I do think it is a... Uh, it sounds a note of caution for trust the science or whatever, mm -hmm. because an important thing to remember about the Holocaust is it was doctors and scientists who, you know, did the selection process at the death camps and did a lot of the horrific experimentations. 
So, you know, these people are not infallible. They all get caught up in this really horrible shit sometimes. Right, right. So how large, Sean, do you think this operation was? How many people are involved in this part of the machine? Oh, like thousands. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. So to talk about specifically the 1935 Nuremberg Laws, um, these are based on formulas devised by the Carnegie Institute, mm-hmm. um, you know, where they have this idea, again, this racial classification of Judaism, where if you're... Uh, they go back to your great-grandparents and they give you little fractions if you're like one-fourth or half-Jewish or whatever else. Right. Um, so this is partly based on the Carnegie Institute sponsored a Jamaican, uh, a study on race crossing in Jamaica in 1926 to, you know, uh, try to categorize these um racial fractals and all this shit this all comes from the eugenics records office which again carnegie funded and this guy uh, named harry lachlan directs it and he testifies to congress and he does racial studies of asylums in the united states in the 1920s uh and he becomes the basis or his his quote-unquote research becomes the basis of the u.s national origins act and he comes up with all these racial categories and kind of creates the system which literally becomes the basis of the Nuremberg Laws. Hmm. It's these racial categories that are set up for the U.S. National Origins Act based on his Carnegie-funded research in the 1920s are then ported over by the Nazis for the Nuremberg Laws in 1935. So there's a direct process by which Carnegie-funded scientific racism uh, impacts U.S. law and then is copied over and transferred into the Nuremberg Laws and then the Holocaust. Are you trying to get crazy with this, eh? Don't you know I'm local? What if Andrew Carnegie smoked weed? <laughs> <laughs> Every bit can't be. What if this evil person got stoned, man? <laughs> what if Andrew Carnegie didn't smoke weed. Oh shit, bro. Let's see now. What if Andrew Cuomo smoked weed? <laughs> <laughs> and so this guy, uh, Henry Lachlan, who uh, came up with these racial formulas, he apparently devised a racial basis for the recognition of Judaism 11 years before hmm. his testimony to Congress in the 1920s. So he's kind of like the progenitor of all this right. while he's getting all this Carnegie money. Apparently, he also, when he was working at the Cold Spring Harbor office in 1937, he became the U.S. distributor of a Nazi propaganda film, The Hereditarily Diseased. Uh, In 1937, he loaned this film out to high schools in New York City and New Jersey. So they kind of go through, or the book goes through these uh, cross-links between the American and German eugenics movements throughout the 1930s. And sort of what happens is it's it's pretty open, but as the German state becomes more repressive, it becomes more controversial in the United States. Um, like Rockefeller continues, the foundation continues funding scholarships to German race scientists and stuff uh, from 1936 to 39. However, they start to rena- rename them and they try to avoid the term eugenics. <laughs> so they just like, you know, essentially try to give funding to all these Nazis, but not put the word eugenics in the project name anymore because the Nazis become more controversial. Do you know that um, Justin Rockefeller, uh, who was a son of, uh, oh, what's his name? 
uh, Jay Rockefeller, the former senator from West Virginia and descendant of the Rockefeller family, he was on the um, he was on the board of the Population Council. Oh, really? Which was started by John D. Rockefeller III. Would you believe that it looks into uh, uh, reproductive issues in the developing world? Wow. That wouldn't shock me. So it's not even this happened 80 to 90 years ago. It's no, no, no. This is continuing today from the people that started this in the first place. Yeah. And it's like, I think we've talked about how like Carnegie and Rockefeller and these billionaires became convinced that they succeeded because they were, you know, more fit or whatever than the rest of the population. So this scientific racism, they really did want to study it. Um, the, the book quotes the Rockefeller Foundation's uh, natural science director uh, stating that he's interested in research about breeding, quote unquote, superior men. <laughs> and he quotes him saying this in like either 1933 or 34. So, you know, it's his responsibility to dole out these funds. But so that brings us to really kind of the grim part about the Rockefeller funding in particular, uh, where what would happen at Auschwitz, a lot of survivors recall getting disembarked from the train and hearing SS guards shouting twins, twins. Oh, really? And, you know, and separating out twins who, who would, uh, of course, be removed from the gas chamber line and then experimented on by, you know, Joseph Mengele or one of his associated scientists. Uh-huh. And the grim reality of it is the reason that twins were so desirable is because... Carnegie and Rockefeller funded eugenics research. Twins were the entire basis of it. Like all these scientific studies, twins were ideal for, particularly identical twins, because, you know, it's the same egg that splits. Right. So you have an exact genetic copy and you can make comparisons about nature versus nurture that way. And kind of what happened for uh, obvious and understandable ethical limitations on scientific studies up until the 20s or 30s, they weren't able to do mass samples, twin studies, particularly not uh, horrifically evil and invasive ones. Right, right. But then with the death camps, you get this mass population uh, on which that they would kind of continue what were originally Carnegie and Rockefeller founded eugenical research. Hmm. Yeah, you know how... Um how they how they found out that um like sativa is more of a mind high <laughs> but indica's more of a, a body high yeah yeah that's right yeah they uh they took some twins and gave gave one of them <laughs> some sativa mids it's like and the other one indica mids and then they cross-checked it uh, with a different pair of twins, one sure. of them given Sativa Loud. Well, triplets is really what they were going for, and they found at least one. The control group, they play elevator music, and then the, the sample group, they play Insane in the Membrane. <laughs> <laughs> and they see how much this enhances. I do think if you play that for like a, a person in World War II, their brains would explode. Just genuinely... Uh-huh. I don't. I cannot handle this, and I am going to uh, die now. Just, Just like, like one, one of those forcible uh, Nazi orchestras <laughs> being made to play. <laughs> in the like, what is this jazz? Yes. <laughs> The guys in the in the um, Enola Gay, just one of them's cranking the old gramophone. <laughs> well, <laughs> just fields of people, children are incinerating beneath them.
<laughs> it's like the Enola Gay getting like pulled over by like some flying cop car. <laughs> and then, like he's like, roll down the window, man. <laughs> the smoke comes out. The smoke comes out in a big mushroom cloud, bro. I'm sorry. We we didn't we didn't plan this episode to include American war crimes. Let's get back to let's get back to Germany. This cop comes over on the jetpack. He's like, "So what you boys doing over here tonight?" Uh, we were just we were just committing war crimes, sir. You know, nothing illegal. All right, if I take a search through your vehicle, well, the dogs are going to be out here soon. If they alert on this plane, I have the right to search it. <laughs> We just got to fly him up here. Right, right. Yeah. But so uh, the eugenical research office, again, Carnegie funded, it started doing twin studies in 1919, and various of these would be written up in the publication Eugenical News. Uh, as I mentioned, they were only able to do limited studies before the Third Reich. But that brings you to one of the key figures of the Rockefeller funding is a Nazi doctor named uh, Dr. Ottmar Freeherr von Verscher, uh, spelled V-E-R-S-C-H-U-E-R. Uh, but you can look this guy up. He's a pretty fascinating Rockefeller-financed race scientist who participated in the student fry corps that uh, staged the cop push putsch hmm. in uh, March 1920. That was like a military coup attempt against the uh, the Weimar Republic that ultimately failed. But, you know, this gives you an idea of where this guy's politics were. Is a German nationalist and anti-Semite. Uh, he becomes one of the three department heads at uh, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology, Human Hereditary, and Eugenics in 1927. In 1934, after the Nazi takeover, he launches the Genetic Doctor as a supplemental ma magazine published by the German Medical Association. Uh, it asks doctors to think of patients not as individuals, but of, as part of a racial whole. Here's, 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 a, here's a question or two. How many calipers do you think that guy had? He and definitely think, had a lot. And do you think he had a favorite one? <laughs> That's like, you know, this is where primarily most of the Rockefeller and Carnegie funding of the Nazis was going to, was like different calipers <laughs> made out of like whale bone <laughs> and like ivory calipers and jade calipers. Right, right. Rhino it's horn like, calipers. Right. I can see you're using my calipers. I specifically got my name etched into them. <laughs> you go to like, you go to smoke with Mangala and he like takes out the calipers to like precisely measure how much bud he's putting into the blunt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he like, he measures your skull and he's like, you're more of a sativa guy. I can tell. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so he launches this magazine, The Genetic Doctor, and this is an important part of the German uh, medical takeover, where, as I mentioned, there's uh, taught, it asks doctors not to think of patients as individuals, but as part of a racial whole. Hmm. And why this is important is because it's like, don't think about that you have an obligation to your patient. Think about the German nation that is polluted by the right. uh, evil that is the racial group of your patient that you have to uh, kill now. You guys ever fuck a racial hole, huh? You guys ever get into that? <laughs> Fucking butts and pusses everywhere. And honestly, at the end of the day... That racial hole, man. Gets it done. Yeah. Uh, but so Dr. Vashur 
1935, he founds the Frankfurt University Institute for Hereditary Biology and Racial Hygiene. Uh, this gives courses and lectures for Nazi Party members and the SS on eugenics and race science. In 1932, he was receiving multiple grants from the Rockefeller Foundations. Uh, the grants did not cease with Hitler taking power. The Reich Research Fund in Berlin also sent him grant money while it was receiving Rockefeller money. His articles were regularly cited in Eugenical News. The end of 1937, he joins the Advisory Committee of Eugenical News, along with three other Nazi eugenicists. Uh, his assistant was Joseph Mengele. Oh. Yes. In 1942, Verschur is promoted to head of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology, Heredity, and Eugenics. By the way, one of those 1932 Rockefeller grants he got was for twin studies. Multiple of his grants specifically say twins. And why this is important is because in 1943, he is the man who applies to the Third Reich for a quote-unquote twin camp within Auschwitz. And he sends his assistant, Joseph Mengele, to run the twin camp. Jeez. So Joseph Mengele would be reporting directly to this guy who was getting all this Rockefeller money who was, you know, specifically receiving money from the Rockefellers to do twin studies. They were asking him to do twin studies. And then he's the one who says to the Nazis, let's have a twin camp at Auschwitz and sends his assistant Mengele out to do it. And Mengele is sending these reports and doing these experiments, sending the papers back to him in Berlin. So it's like, this is how it fucking happened. It was the Rockefellers. Wait, Sean, let's do a thing. Um, uh, I, I'm Rockefeller mm -hmm. and you're an assistant telling me about the discovery by the Soviet Union of Auschwitz for the first time. Okay, okay. Uh, Mr. Rockefeller, the Soviets have just discovered a death camp in Poland. Oh, wow, wow, wow. Uh, <laughs> did, they, did they get their papers? Did they find their papers? Like their notes? Did they find the notes? From from those those monsters, I'm sure they had a medical facility with notes. <laughs> no, all of the papers were burned. They have no idea who funded this facility. Okay, but were there like trains leaving that might have had papers? <laughs> you know, it's not it's it's not it's I mean it's not a it's not a political thing. It's it's just about science. Oh yeah, you know what's so fucked up is like I remember the first time I learned about race science, the term when it comes to like racial disparities and stuff. But when I first heard it, I literally thought race science meant like, you know, the f fastest way to run or like the like the quickest way to drive around a track. Like I thought like science on racing. Like I was like, oh, race science, fucking how to be the quickest. And it's like, oh, no, 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 buddy. This is, it's similar to that, but more about what color you look like. Yeah, no, it was, it was real awkward when you asked, were asked to declare your major in college. <laughs> And they were like, yeah, sure. And they told you what classes to take. And it was completely different. <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, in 1936, the Rockefeller Foundation has a new president. Uh, they stop specifically funding projects with the name eugenics, but they continue funding Nazi research. Uh, in, actually, in the contemporary United States at the time, in June 1939, there were actually protests against the Rockefeller Foundation for hmm. funding Nazi race science wow. in June 1939. And uh, the president internally, they publicly deny that they fund Nazi race science. But in this time, June 1939, the president writes an internal memo that says uh, internally that denials of their funding of Nazi race science, quote, of course, were hardly correct. 
So essentially, he's saying that we are actually funding Nazi race science in 1939, but they kind of recognize that this is a bit of a PR problem. Hmm. And then to just kind of speak about Joseph Mengele real quick, uh, he gets his PhD in 1935, dissertation on facial biometrics of four racial groups, asserted racial identification was possible through the examination of an individual's jawline. Um, he becomes the assistant of to this guy, the doctor I mentioned earlier, Dr. Vashir, uh, Vershahir, whatever it is, uh, in 1937. Two of them wrote medical opinions for the Nazi courts enforcing the Nuremberg laws, hmm. you know, saying that people should be sterilized or, you know, this Jewish person should be prosecuted for sleeping with an Aryan or whatever. Right. Uh, in 1938, he joins the SS. 1934, 1943, he arrives in Auschwitz. Wilhelm Frick was the Nazi interior minister, later hanged for war crimes. He compels all twins to register with local public health offices and make themselves available for genetic testing in 1939. <laughs> so essentially, the Nazis turned their entire population into a mass basis for twin experiments. And kind of what Mengele believed was you could create a super race as though you were breeding horses. And so he was so interested in twins because he wanted every German mother to bear as many twins as possible. Wait, so quick question. Like, I, I hate to seem this naive, but like, are you telling me that they took all twins and any twins? It doesn't matter if they were German or Jewish or, or fucking Polish or Romani or whatever. Like, they just took everyone that was twins? They essentially, like, based on their racial groups, would be based on how you would be treated. So, mm -hmm. like, in 39, they, they compel all twins to register. But, you know, it was obviously, like, far more soft they wouldn't do the same kind of experimentation on quote-unquote Aryan twins it was just these uh mm. racial groups that were considered animals who were just subjected to uh these complete violations of medical ethics Is that a long way saying they wouldn't do it to white people but anyone not yeah. white they would basically <laughs> <yes>. okay <laughs> white privilege ex is existed got it yeah fuck uh, fuck i never knew none of this shit I, I knew i mean i knew we were doing a 420 episode but i really thought It'd be shits and giggles talking about companies that were like, ha we made money from the war and now we still exist, but this is some dark fucking shit. Oh, you, you weren't expecting a trippy episode on 420. <laughs> Bro, you know what? You're right. Let me just fucking take a moment, get my head together. You know, I just really need to think about some things. By the way, if some of you are uh, <sighs> listening to this and you're in the New York at area uh or could see yourself living there and you're thinking you know um the rockefeller foundation how how do i get a job there well uh at their website now they're currently hiring for a director policy and coalitions position uh in, in new york city they're also looking for a communications director oh that could be me uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a managing director, global networks and strategic partnerships. That was listed 22 days ago, so uh, you're probably not going to have a good chance on that one. Um, oh, there's a CEO of their SPX division. I don't know what the SPX is, um, but I'm sure it's uh, upstanding. Um, so, yeah, just go to uh, the official Rockefeller Foundation website and click on the careers tab, rockefellerfoundation.org slash about us slash careers. And, you know, get your Rockefeller Foundation journey started. Transform the world. I'm really good at the selection process. I can tell you, like, really quickly who's a worker and who should be immediately <laughs> condemned to death as a waste of food. Well, that's good because, you know, the 2.6 billion undeserved people in the world need, need an advocate. <laughs> 
but you know, last thing here. Well, first of all, again, it's so telling to learn that, you know, Mangala and all these Nazi scientists, they weren't just making this shit up. They were just following current Rockefeller and Carnegie funded quote unquote science, right. what the actual science was up until that time. Um, so Mengele, Joseph Mengele creates a pathology lab at Auschwitz. He selects among condemned Jewish doctors and scientists for as assistance, you know, like whatever, um, he had basically his choice of some of the best Jewish scientists in Europe were forced to work in his lab. Yeah. That's the thing about academia right now is that, you know, uh, if, if you want to get ahead, you know, you can't necessarily do the projects you want to do. Sometimes you got to do some race science to just get your foot in the door. Yeah, publish or perish race science papers. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is literally publish or perish for them if they're yeah, forcibly <laughs> selected at Auschwitz. <laughs> I won't go into like too much graphic detail in terms of what Joseph Mengele was actually doing there, but I should briefly reiterate uh, the horrific nature of these experiments. Uh, he would, among other things that he did, he was apparently subjected one thousand, at least one thousand five hundred twins were subjected to experiments at Auschwitz by Joseph Mengele. Uh, Jesus, Yogi. Uh, Two hundred of those would survive. So one thousand five hundred. He killed thirteen hundred people, and then did horrific experiments on the surviving two hundred. If, if I can't play uh, a sound effect that's that's almost as old as the facts you're saying, Sean. What's the point of the show, bro? You think Wilhelm was one of the officers? <laughs> There was a guy named Wilhelm. You know there was, at least one. I'm sure there was. Um, oh, yeah. But so among the experiments Mengele did, he sewed identical twins together. Uh, mm. In this case, they died to see if he could make Siamese twins out of identical twins. Uh, he made twins have sex with each other to see if twins would result. He uh, various times dropped dyes into people's eyes to try to create blue eyes. This mostly just blinded people. Mm. Uh, he removed eyeballs for study, and this is apparently per an earlier Carnegie-funded eugenics records office eye color twin studies. Mm -hmm. This was a big focus of them was the eye colors of twins. So, of course, at Auschwitz, there was a giant wall of removed eyeballs that they would uh, analyze, and many of which were sent back to Berlin because of these earlier Carnegie-funded eye color studies were big, big interest. Um, of course, they... By the way, it, I, I guess it, we kind of have to mention Mangala wasn't actually a doctor, uh, <laughs> but he was heavily inspired by these doctors funded by Rockefeller. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he did have a PhD. So oh, he, he was like... He oh, was I'm, the sorry. Original... I'm sorry. I'm he, sorry. He was a doctor. Well, Andy, yeah, Sean a... meant a pretty huge dick. So you, yes. <laughs> just because he's a PhD, he, he can't put dr in front of his name because he's right. not a medical doctor. Right. I'm sorry. He was, I'm sorry. He was a doctor. The original Jill Biden. <laughs> That's fair. Liberals getting like really mad that you won't call Mangala a doctor. <laughs> he earned his PhD with his dissertation on facial biometrics of racial groups such as the ancient Egyptians. <laughs> I've never offended Sean more than playing the Wilhelm scream during the beginning of that. Jesus, Yogi. <laughs> 
I mean, I'm not going to go against your editorial decision <laughs> to play Hollywood sound effects during Holocaust discussion. Listen, I, I, I sensed the episode getting dark, and I'm like, let me just lift it up just a little bit before we go over right. the edge. Yeah, I mean, if you if there's like the misconception that uh, Sean doesn't have a line, it, 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 <laughs> take that out of your head. There's a line. You can find it. I found it today. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, Mangala was analyzing blood samples, giving forcible blood transfusions. They were always sending these blood samples back to the lab in Berlin. Uh, of course, they did disease exposures. Twins were typically killed together so that you could autopsy them simultaneously. Hmm. You know, if one dies, you go kill the other one and then do simultaneous autopsies. Uh, and yeah, as I mentioned, killed at least 1,300 people through these horrific experiments, uh, sent all these eugenics research papers and all these samples back to Berlin, uh, that was based on continuing earlier Carnegie and Rockefeller funded research. And, you know, as I mentioned, the Rockefeller's foundation's natural science director said in 1934 that they were interested in breeding quote unquote superior men. So this is kind of the end point of it. This is what uh, California eugenics race science eventually led to was the death camp at Auschwitz. Well, you'll be happy to know that if you go to the Rockefeller Foundation website, you'll find out that they are still committed to finding and funding solutions to humanity's most critical global challenges. Well, that's good to know. Hey, Sean. So like with the Carnegie and Rockefeller people being like race science is our real was that them being, I mean, obviously evil, but also just a, you know, pseudo educational scientific way of them being like, we deserve this money. We are the superior race. Like, is it just as much a, a cash grab of like, never think that a person that's not white could be as good as us, but also one that just benefits them. Do they really believe it or does it just benefit their wallet? I think it becomes a bit of both. I mean, I think power creates its own ideology that justifies itself. So I think, you know, if you have the most money, then yeah, you'll kind of invent this idea that you have the most money because you're the best and you're superior and right. you did better. And if you uh, find ideas about uh, racial groups that you happen to belong to being better, like wasps and Nordics, then yeah, you will kind of... Uh, You'll believe it yourself, but you'll also disseminate it as a form of propaganda that justifies your own rule. But what if Nelson Rockefeller smoked weed? <laughs> it's like he releases the report under Gerald Ford that's like, we should abolish the CIA, man. That's not chill at all what they're doing. <laughs> Mangala and his his assistant scientists have a, that seventies show table scene. <laughs> the the right. tables where they dissected someone that yep. earlier. Right, Mangala, could you sit down? Stop standing by the door. You're making me nervous. <laughs> you need to relax, bro. It's like you're always on the run. <laughs> they pan over and like Joe Kennedy's in one of the spots. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But yes, that is a bit of a sad overview of the history of Carnegie and Rockefeller and their charitable foundations and just what they are responsible for. But, you know, we didn't want to bum you out on no. the 420 episode. We're, we're going to throw to something much more uplifting. And mm -hmm. I understand Andy has done some, some more uplifting research. 
it'll be a bit bit more chiller, have a bit better vibes than what I just described. Well, yeah, I mean, what 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 we were just talking about, you know, that was a, a gross miscarriage of science. Um, uh, I it's just a, a horrible misuse of something that otherwise should have good applications, you know, mm-hmm. um, just exploiting it. Uh, but I'm going to talk about something that you can't misuse, which is statistics and um, uh, civic population data. So, oh, population uh, data. I have some of that. I, I have a thing for that right here, real quick. Uh, let me just play it real quick for y'all. That's just some solid math right there on the population. Yeah, if you if you classify all these n words and all these hoes, <laughs> and then you can sort them by whether or not they go to fuck. Mm-hmm. That's right. Somebody gonna fuck. And then send it through the IBM punch cards. Yeah, so I'm I'm about to talk to you guys about uh, the great American company, International Business Machines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they are a solutions based company. That's that's how they've built themselves at least since the 30s. Uh, <laughs> they are a company. Uh, they're a company that goes to a government that wants solutions and. Right. Uh, they, you know, they, it, what's interesting about IBM, they're a computer company, but they didn't start in computers. They were uh, an amalgamation of four different companies. One of them was uh, created by a guy named Herman Holorith. He, um, he, he was a guy who used to work for the United States Census. And then in about the mid 1880s, he came up with this punch card idea that uh, like vastly sped up the census process. Uh, you know, you just put some information in these cards, run them through, crank them through a little machine and you get a bunch of data back. And so um, he took this technology private, founded the Tabulation Machine Company, uh, Tabulating Machine Company. And in 1911, uh, this company was merged with three other companies to form Computing Tabulating Recording Company. And in 1924, under the presidency of Thomas J. Watson, they changed their name to the uh, name we all know now, International Business Machines or Mm. IBM. And... At this time, uh, IBM tabulators were still called Hollerith machines, uh, and the punch cards were called Hollerith cards. And, you know, IBM, they liked... They, uh, one of their biggest clients was different countries, you know, around the world, because these punch cards, they're great for collecting information on a population, for, like, census purposes, right. or, you know, if you want to get, like, uh, for whatever reason, like, racial data, uh, it's really good for that. Um, but why would anybody need that racial distribution? Uh, so, uh, they, they when, sort the population by smokes weed. Yes. or no. <laughs> <laughs> when the Nazis went from, uh, you know, a guy who yells in his buddies to a government institution, um, IBM began its strategic relationship with them in 1933. Oh. Uh, and the nature of the relationship is that, um, you know, IBM, they have this strategy. They ask every customer what result they want, and they do their best to provide that result regardless of whether the customer was Hitler. And so <laughs> uh, they, they, they went to the Nazis, you know, very early on, and they're like, what results do you want from our data processing and the Nazis said, okay, well, we've got, you know, this problem, um, you know, our first solution, we, we, we just need to, um, 
identify the uh, where the 600,000 Jews in Germany live and what professions they work in. Mm. Uh, we also want to identify uh, which Jews in Germany are Eastern Jews, uh, specifically from Eastern Europe, who are people, uh, which was a group that was particularly hated by Hitler, as uh, things might show later. Mm. Um, so yeah. IBM in New York instructed its German subsidiary uh, to design a massive German census, which um, the firm would then use to... Uh, the, which IBM's subsidiary in Germany would implement using its own machines and its own trained staff. Oh. But, you know, in fairness to IBM, there was nothing in Hitler's book that would have suggested it was dangerous that he wanted to locate the 600,000 Jews in Germany. True, true. And also in fairness to IBM, uh, the punch card technology was strictly proprietary and they were very litigious uh, to anyone who who tried to uh, use their own version of that technology. So really, like, who else were the Nazis going to turn to, you know? Yeah. There's a passage in Mein Kampf where Hitler says something that I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, he says, wouldn't it have been better for our people if instead of all these Germans dying in World War One, we had just taken a few thousand of these Hebrew poisoners and <laughs> held them down under mustard gas Jeez. or something like that. So, you know, this is the kind of person that IBM knew they were dealing with. You saying that is so much more unnerving when it's through an iPhone. <laughs> it really is, Sean. We're used to seeing your face uh, like next to a desk and like level, but for some reason, this vertical phone screen move you got going on makes everything seem like you're somehow in the past and the future all at the same time. You know, you look I mean, like Zoltan from Power Rangers, the fucking glass yeah. tube motherfucker. That's, that's what I'm dealing with right now. I'm going to, if I can make a career suggestion, uh, I'm going to say don't pivot to TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we are not the uh, first 420 podcast episode to lose track of time <laughs> and perhaps go on a little too long. So what's actually happened over the course of this episode is I started out on headphones on my computer and then my headphones ran out of batteries and then I switched to my iPad and then my iPad ran out of batteries and now I'm doing the last bit on my iPhone. Skype calling in. I mean, he's making it work, Andy. You gotta give him that. Yeah, it, you you are making it work. You're being, uh, yeah, you're you're being very resourceful. Yes. Um, and you know who else was resourceful? IBM. Mm. So uh, IBM engineers designed a special punch card system to uh, identify Jews, their origin, their current location, and their profession. Um, each answer was assigned a number and position on the punch card, and once the results had been tabulated, uh, Nazis could identify exactly how many, for example, and this is an example that was used in uh, the book Sean referenced earlier, uh, they could tell you how many Polish Jews were engaged in the fur trade in Berlin. Oh. Yeah. They had uh, that ability, and um, they also incorporated into these systems uh, data collected from police registrations, marriage bureaus, labor certificates, uh, and pretty much any other statistical points uh, with information about religion and nationality that they could get their hands on. So this group of Jews from this area prefer Indica, and then this group of Jews in this area, they're more sativa heads, and over here, these Jews, they like a hybrid, but honestly, they're really just sativa heads in, in, in shame. Oh yeah, they could they could separate the spliff Jews from the bong Jews. <laughs> it's like fill out this punch card on a scale of one to four twenty. How high are you? <laughs> water bong so smooth you don't realize how high you're getting till it's too late. <laughs> Actually, in order to be able to properly um, 
record that information, they had to use several punch cards <laughs> since 420 was out of the, the range of an individual punch card. Right, of course. Uh, so one of the results was that people who were completely unaware of Jewish ancestry and, for example, like their grandparents converted, um, they were identified uh, through like old church baptismal books or um, conversion certificates, things like that. And so um, the Nazis were very happy with this result. So they contacted IBM for a second solution. Um, and they were like, hey, could you help us, uh, you know, with this little administrative task of um, removing all identified Jews from every segment of society in a professional capacity? Uh, and so they uh, used IBM technology to identify who was Jewish in pretty much every profession um, in German life and then uh, expel them. This is, I think this is when Einstein got out of Germany because I think he was expelled from the university at this point. Um, and so Loser. all these IBM products, they were leased and the company was paid a monthly rent and that monthly rent continued throughout the war Wow! Uh, by way of Switzerland. And so, um, can I just say, it is interesting to me that both Albert Einstein and Nick Mullen have lost livelihoods because of IBM. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so when you're leasing one of these machines from IBM, um, they are very delicate machines and they require, uh, careful cleaning and servicing every two to four weeks. Um, you just got to blow bong smoke into it, bro. <laughs> That'll unclog it. You got to let the machine get high, That's man. Right. They're like That's living right. They're That's like right. organic, mm -hmm. living computers, mm -hmm. man. Yeah. This service uh, was provided by IBM employees. It was uh, provided at the location of the machines. And uh, so there were IBM repairmen who were keeping the machines running in Auschwitz. Mm. Uh, so Nazis needed a third solution, uh, which was impoverishment because Hitler believed that all of the Jews' money was actually stolen from Germans and redistributed between the Jews. And so he wanted to get it back. And so IBM helped them in uh, going through Jewish-owned bank accounts, hmm. um, uh, insurance policies, stock holdings, real estate, and other assets that could be uh, systematically identified. Uh, and part of the reason that EBM, or IBM had uh, such uh, good access to this information is that they also serviced nearly all the bank savings institutions and brokerages uh, and taxing authorities in Germany. Wow. Uh, so, you know, um, uh, I guess they didn't have good enough privacy laws for data sharing at the time. Hmm. Uh, so they could just take this information and cross-reference it with their data. And uh, then through special fines, flight taxes, penalties, um, uh, aaronization and outright confiscation they did systematically uh impoverish the jews of germany so fourth solution ghettoization and this is where ibm came up with data programs to match the addresses of jews in ordinary res residential neighborhoods uh against ghetto relocation addresses where say five six or seven families would be packed into a single housing unit uh, uh ibm was there to help uh the fifth solution was deportation uh at the before uh, the um, machine processing of information, it was very difficult to coordinate, say, a national rail system. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, thanks to the technology and services provided by uh, uh, William T. Watson, James T. Watson, whatever the fuck, um, 
Thanks to his visionary um, innovations, uh, IBM was able to create a system that could highly automate train scheduling uh, to make murder as efficient as possible. Mm. And um, special IBM programs were devised to meter the, um, basically get the uh, Jews from ghetto to concentration camp. Um, and all of these operations were signed off by Watson. Um, he received a 5% bonus on every dollar after tax, after dividend um, that IBM business with the Reich made. Um, but he wasn't a bad it, dude though, right? Like well, he's still pretty all right, right? Yeah, no, I mean, here, here's something he said, you know, it was kind of, uh, this was his, uh, I think early in, uh, before the war, when he was starting his his uh, his partnership with the Nazis, he made this all lives matter statement. Uh, different countries require different forms of government and we should be careful not to let people in other countries feel that we are trying to standardize principles of government throughout the world. Hmm. He's against regi regime change. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't, he didn't want to punish the people of Germany, uh, you know, because of our, our cultural expectations that they um, not have a, a systematic fascist regime uh, operating a murder factory. Something Zuckerberg would say when questioned at like by the Senate. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. This is Google's like, don't be evil uh, unless a country says it's legal to be evil. Yeah. The uh, the IBM Watson smart computer is actually based on him, so it'll uh, use infrared to measure your skull before it starts talking to you. <laughs> Remember they had that like um, IBM robot that was playing Jeopardy that was named after Watson? for a little bit and then they had to discontinue him because he kept on justifying like you know some of the ideological underpinnings of fascism <laughs> it taught itself phrenology yeah what if um, Watson smoked weed <laughs> well here's the thing to, to keep in mind about IBM is that they sorry go on they weren't true believers in my uh, name is Watson I am high as fuck right now. <laughs> they weren't true believers in eugenics or necessarily the race science. Uh, they were just very good at automating it and uh, making implementation of it uh, much more accessible to paying customers. And so um, they mostly worked through this uh, subsidiary uh, called... Um, their IBM subsidiary, which was uh, Deutsche Hollerith Machine and Gesellschaft, Hollerith being the name of the guy who invented the machines. Uh, so that was basically, it means German Hollerith Machine Company. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, they originally just licensed the machines from IBM, but IBM purchased them during the hyperinflation of World War One. They got a nice discount. And uh, Watson kept... Uh, the company president, uh, Willie Heidegger, on the promise of a 20% uh, profit sharing agreement. And there were a lot of arguments later between Watson and Heidegger, not because he Heidegger was an ardent Nazi, but uh, because Watson kept trying to uh, find ways out of giving him the 20% profit sharing agreement. Hell yeah. Um, and part of the reason he was able to do that is uh, because most of these agreements were if we're done through untraceable um, oral agreements because Watson had been caught in a um, through a paper trail in a in a um, antitrust suit earlier in his life. Mm -hmm. And so the guy who whose business was uh, meticulously processing data uh, had 
a uh, a policy of like when working with the Nazis, like no, don't write anything down. Yeah, Heidegger was like, yeah, Watson, you're really trying to jip me on this twenty percent. You're you're being a lot like those people that we got rid of right now. You know. And Watson's like, oh, we don't, we actually don't use that term anymore. It's actually, it's kind of low key gross that you would phrase it like that. Um, but yeah, we're we're gonna um, we're gonna bring you you know the the checks in the mail. But uh, hopefully our machines are working as advertised. So so that's like you know that's kind of morally justifiable though. Like he helped the Nazis with the Holocaust, but he also stole money from them while doing it. So <laughs> it's like resistance. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, one of the things they did uh, was at the beginning of the war uh, they had the um, head of the the Czech subsidiary of IBM put signs on uh, German machines that said that they were actually being licensed and operated by um, uh, Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. which uh, I guess they used as another way to kind of get around a lot of the wartime restrictions with Germany, even though Czechoslovakia was had been invaded at that point. So I'm not sure what exactly, uh, how exactly that worked. But uh, whatever the case, uh, all the money... Uh, the bills kept getting paid throughout the war uh, and they're passed through intermediaries in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, so there's one last solution that the Nazis needed from IBM, one with um, finality. And so that is something that IBM was uh, happy to help out with. Um, they had actually a whole network of these of these machines, uh, various types uh, in a camp like Dachau, there'd be as many as uh, two dozen IBM sorters, tabulators, printer, uh, and printers um, that were installed there. Other places, uh, other camps, people would just, you know, take notes and then mail it to a location with a machine. As I mentioned earlier, Auschwitz had machines. Um, IBM engineers, uh, for their punch cards and tabulations, uh, assigned code numbers for each major camp. Auschwitz was 001, Buchenwald 002, Dachau 003, Fossenburg 004, and so on. Um, 420. Inmates at Auschwitz uh, were assigned Hollerith numbers. Again, the name of this guy who, uh, I don't know his personal politics, but boy, it's unfortunate that his name's on all of this stuff. <laughs> um, but he was, I think he was good and dead at this point. Uh, so the, they... Inmates at Auschwitz were assigned Hollerith numbers uh, to track their uh, uh, labor assignments, death statistics, etc. And uh, of course, these numbers um, were eventually uh, tattooed on non-German Auschwitz prisoners mm-hmm. uh, and became those infamous number tattoos. Right. But then uh, it gets worse is that the the Hollerith numbers at Auschwitz were later abandoned in favor of um, more ad hoc numbering systems because the prisoners were were dying too fast for the IBM systems to keep up. Um, and the paper for the punch so cards... So much for supercomputing. <laughs> uh, the paper for the punch cards that were produced to work these IBM Hollerith machines, uh, it was manufactured in Auschwitz. Mm. Um at Auschwitz, the uh, Hollerith managers were located in the Hollerith Bureau of uh, the Auschwitz III concentration camp complex. Um, IBM also uh, coded prisoners based on categories, political prisoner, that's a one, homosexual, three, Jew, eight, gypsy, 12, uh, and deaths were also coded. Uh, natural causes was coded three, 
uh, execution four, suicide five. And then there was the special treatment, uh, Sonderbehandlung, that was a six, um, which was a euphemism for gas chamber or bullet to the neck. Oh. Yeah. And then after the war... Um, <laughs> they gave all the money back. That's right. They gave all the money back. Uh, after the war, not much happened, uh, but they made a robot that went on Jeopardy. <laughs> and they beat Gary Kasparov at chess. Yeah, fuck that guy. Another another Russian <laughs> falls victim to IBM sorting <laughs> machines. Yeah, but you know, it's okay now because IBM lost a lot of market share. And I think you had something, Yogi. You know, bro, it's not ones and zeros on computers, man. It's fours, twos, and zeros, bro. That's how it all works, man. <laughs> uh, to close out our... What if, what if binary language smoked weed? <laughs> <laughs> And instead of ones and zeros, it was fours and twos and zeros. Bro, you got to look into quantum computing. It will blow your mind. All right. So to close out this episode, we're going to talk about the one, the only Chanel number five, Coco Chanel. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We're going back to the French because I don't trust them and I don't like them. Yes, I previously hated everyone from the state of Massachusetts, more specifically Boston, but now fuck France is also a part of it. I'm trying to be a real American here and and uh, one of them till the day I die is going to be fuck the French. Uh, Amen. Keeping 2002 alive. For many years, some of this information was hidden from the world that Coco Chanel had a secret life as a Nazi agent. That's right. The fashion designer aided in undercover missions for Abwehr during World War II. How do I say that, Andy? A-B-W-E-H-R? Abwehr? Oh, Abwehr. Abwehr. Should use the V, Germany. Anyway. <laughs> it's so cute when Germans are learning to speak English and they know that W's and V's don't sound the same anymore. <laughs> but they don't quite differentiate it in their head because they're both pronounced the same way. So they'll just say like, and so it's very like they'll, right. Right. They'll even do it with V words to overcompensate. It's adorable. All right. So <laughs> it's, it's like that, that HBO movie about the Vonsi conference, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. but they're all sitting around the, the conference table, but they are using that 70s show stoned cuts. <laughs> where it goes from like uh, Adolf Eichmann to Reinhard Heydrich. And they're like giggling. <laughs> Let's make soap out of them, dude. <laughs> Cuts to Adolf Eichmann and he's just chewing on a pencil. Um, for my research, I wanted to watch The Wars of Coco Chanel hosted at uh, distribution.art.tv France. And uh, to watch anything on their website, you have to submit yourself as a member, and they promptly rejected us. So uh, if anyone's got a art distribution connect, please let me know, because I do want to watch this movie on uh, uh, Chanel, uh, Coco Chanel. Um, for a quick quick bio, we're not going to go do a whole thing. We're already fucking two hours deep into this thing. Uh, Coco Chanel, born in 1883. All of it essential. <laughs> Uh, all, uh, born in 1883, her ass is broke. Her mom dies when she's 11. Her dad's like, I'm going to peace out. She grows up in a convent where they teach everyone in it to sew and 
uh, do needlepoint, not needlepoint, but just do, you know, women uh, fabric crafting things of the times. I'm not trying to say only women can do that shit now, but. It's not funny to the listeners anymore after two hours if I go, she grew up at a convent where they teach everyone to smoke weed. Like, in my head, I'm laughing, sure. but I'm also like, we've been doing this for literally two hours. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I like, as a bit, I, I fuck with it. Um, listen, I'm going to keep this very short, but basically... Listen, I just, I just want to say, uh, I think that women belong in the kitchen <laughs> smoking weed. <laughs> Or she, wherever else they would like to smoke weed. <laughs> she leaves the uh, convent at the age of 18, uh, learning how to uh, do like very meticulous uh, sewing work. And after this point, she just gets into fucking dudes and causing problems. Like like a Zaza Gabor, Coco Chanel. At one point, she becomes a singer and only sings these two words that have the word Coco in them for some reason. I, I couldn't really... <laughs> The, the, the wars of Chanel would have taught me more, but I couldn't get into it. And so her nickname becomes Coco. And uh, then she starts fucking this French guy who uh, she com- makes him compete with another dude for her attention. And eventually they both just start giving her money. I mean, I don't know if she's prostituting herself or she's just fucking playing them like a ham. But either way, one of the cats gives her enough money to start her own hat and uh, perfume store. And the hats are selling gangbusters because uh, Coco Chanel's whole thing is like clothing for women should be practical. She's got like a weird Ayn Rand thing about the look of her face and stuff. It's very narrow, very like lizardish, you know. And uh, Coco Chanel basically takes away the concept of like corsets and 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 uh, clothes for women that are just extremely uncomfortable and creates the trends like the little black dress. Uh, women wearing pants, women wearing like a like a sailor's jersey with stripes and stuff. You know, her her claimed fame is like she she modernized how women dress, and that that bit is kind of true. But Coco Chanel as a woman uh, started fucking around with a whole bunch of dudes, and then eventually would start fucking in 1940 Hans Gunther von Dinklage, an officer in Abwehr, the German military intelligence. Um, and nobody so she, took that guy seriously. <laughs> um, so then she like during oh, it's Colonel Dinklage. Okay. Well, uh, Dinklage is grandfather. That's right. That's precisely correct. Coco Chanel would like live in a hotel and then run this store. And she had like a individual that she split the business on the perfume size with that happened to be Jewish. And she felt that that guy was cheating her of money. So she was like, Hey, these people want to kill the Jews. So I'm going to fucking straddle with them so I can fucking get this guy out of my company, but also was an anti-Semitic sans the Nazis. Here's my impression of officer Dinklage. That's what I do. I think. And I smoke weed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So during the war, she's, coordinating with the Nazis as a German spy. In 1944, General Walter Schellingberg of the SS named Operation Model Hut, German for model hat. She was to use her personal connection to Winston Churchill, now England's prime minister, to relay word that many SS senior officers were seeking an end to the bloodshed. Um, Basically, from this moment on, she gets outed as a spy, and then she would escape to Switzerland, 
and be allowed to go back to France when they're uh, trying traitors because Winston Churchill goes like, oh, you can't fuck with this woman. She's someone I know. I don't know how she was able to get so many dudes on her hook, if you know what I mean. Like, the only thing that's not explained about Coco Chanel is how she is able to just, like, fucking get these men on a fucking whipstick. You know what I mean? I don't I don't know how she, she did was, it. She was the only woman in 1944 who didn't smell like complete shit. <laughs> There's actually a lot of power in that back then. I'm, I like her, her, her fashion um, mm-hmm. philosophy that, you know... Uh, women's fashion should be functional for maintaining the Nazi war machine. <laughs> um, like fa- fast fashion is when you kill the people who provide the hair for the wigs within one hour <laughs> of arriving at the camp. You know, weirdly enough, so after the war, she makes like a buttload from the perfumes and her and her fashion brand that gets relaunched in 1954 with at the time people in France being like, fuck this chick. She worked with the fucking Nazis. But all that hubbub has has died down as of now. And um, she yeah, makes I think they advertise in the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. There's a C on both sides like Chanel. So like she makes a whole bunch of money and then just lives at the Ritz Carlton for the last 30 years of her life. She never marries Cause she got, you know, got some good dick from some dudes that are dead. And then, so she's like, I'm just going to live in a hotel. And it's like, I don't respect any people connected to the Nazis, but in terms of psychopathic perfectionists raised by, you know, church nuns to then hoodwink a whole bunch of dudes. I really, you know, I I know I'm going to seem a little uh, misogynistic by this, but I really think them church nuns were like more developed women that were able to teach younger uh, convent members like hey this is how you do sewing this is how you do math this is how you read and so when they like left the church and were just like fucking dudes they're like i am like 80 times smarter than you you're just a guy with a gun you know you don't know nothing and were able to charm their way into anything because that seems like how coco chanel got shit done long story short coco chanel as well as hugo boss and many other fashion brands including lvmh have direct correct connections to the nazi party and as we all know the bernard arnold family uses alligator blood to orgasm <laughs> and not only did they get such interactions from the likes of coco chanel you know coco chanel is getting down freaky to fucking hoodwink all them guys I know some of you are probably saying, hey, why didn't you guys do Hugo Boss? Why didn't you do, you know, Bayer or mm-hmm. as was known then back then, IG Farben? And right. the answer is, uh, it's going to be 420 next year, too. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we- yeah, we could have, the idea for this episode, as you might have figured out by now, was that we would do a 420 episode and then the gag would be, it would be about companies connected to the Nazis. <laughs> for Hitler's birthday. And we thought, yeah, let's cover all of them. It turns out there's actually a lot of companies oh, yeah. <laughs> that are connected to the Nazis. And we did four hours and we got, or we did two hours. We got through four of them, sort of. But there's also Ford and General Motors and Standard Oil and Shell Oil and uh, IG Farben, as mentioned. So we got, this is an annual Grubstakers tradition now. We, yeah. I mean, the, the origin of the idea was we, we were thinking like, what is one way that we can get people who hate us an episode to direct people to? 
when trying to explain why they hate us. Let's increase our cancellation risk, shall we? my favorites where it's like i, I want to recommend this podcast to my friends but there's not really an episode that i can <laughs> lead them in with none of the ones you've recorded recently are good first episodes to start with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay well i'm gonna i'm gonna just give this to you guys to think over for next 420 next time you see a vw bug mm-hmm. out on the street mm-hmm. just remember hitler designed the original version of that like he drew the pictures. He, um, anyway, that's a stoner car, I guess. Uh, so, you know, it can, it can harsher vibe, uh, or something. We'll get into the details next, next year. You know what Hitler dreamed of doing in that car? <laughs> Bro. Have you ever tried to have uh, racial skull measuring conversations <laughs> on weed? Um, Just imagine, like the smoke, the marijuana smoke billowing out of a Vita be- beetle with a swastika <laughs> sticker on the bumper. Well, um, if you enjoyed this episode, please send us uh, marijuana drops that we didn't get to that you would appreciate for next year. I don't know if we'll make this a yearly tradition, but I'm sure we'll do this more than I once. I think we will. Um, I have some important things to say before we go. Okay. All right. So first off, all right. So it's two SS guards, and one of them's like, dude, how do you get your German shepherd to be so chill all the time? <laughs> He's like, well, you got to let the dog smoke, bro. If you if you lift up his ear and you blow you blow the smoke in, you can uh, you can share the treat. And you know, I mean, he still alerts if like somebody's like running away, you're trying mm-hmm. to get to by mm-hmm. the electrified fence. You know, he'll go after him. But other than that, he's like the chillest, sweetest dog. He never bites the commandant. Wait, wait, you mean smoke cigarettes? No, man. Reefers. You know, this is this is the problem with uh, Major Biden right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is they 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 didn't let anyone in that administration who knows how to train Major Biden. That's right. That's it's right. like you're joking, but you're also serious at the same time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if what if at one point during a press conference, Biden slips and says like one of the, their real names, like Blondie? <laughs> Ava Brown, get over here. So so sorry. What if instead of Hitler giving his dog a cyanide capsule, he gave him a marijuana edible? <laughs> <laughs> so there was just a high ass dog uh in the bunker. The the scene from Downfall where he tells people to leave the room. <laughs> But instead of having a flipping out, he just hotboxes the entire yeah. Hotboxing the pyramid. It's it's like, a, the subtitles are like, everyone except for Gables and so-and-so leave. The subtitles in the YouTube video are like, so you ever listen to Joe Rogan? <laughs> it's... 
It's the scene in the scene in Downfall where like Goebbels and the secretaries are like waiting outside of the bunker that Hitler and Ava Braun Eva Braun have mm-hmm, gone into, mm-hmm, right? Like by themselves to commit suicide, but instead of like a gunshot, they just see like smoke slowly wafting out through the <laughs> through under the door. They hear visions of Joanna by Bob Dylan coming from the gramophone. <laughs> They then cut to uh, Goebbels with his family and, you know, all of his kids sitting on their bunks and his mother's like, you have to, you have to take this. And she holds up a bong and lights it up for each kid one by one. She's like, she does bong rips and then shotguns her own children. (laughs) The bong rips. What if what if the Goebbels children smoked weed? One of the one of the children knows what's going on. She's like, I don't wanna and she like blows the weed smoke in her mouth anyway. But then she's chill. Yeah, the super least chill of Goebbels children is like a huge square. He's like, I don't wanna smoke weed. The uh alternate universe chill Nazis. Mm-hmm. Uh the gas chamber doors open up the the weed it wafts out and the saunter commandos come in to like give out mini doritos bags and check the vibes of everybody in the hot box <laughs> chamber <laughs> but you have to enslave people to do this of course of course now, this has been grub stakers <laughs> instead of <laughs> it's instead of work will set you free it's smoke weed every day. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, but all of like the memoirs are the same where it just becomes like hell on earth where you're just forced to get extremely high every single day. And people are like, there is no God here. There was no God. You, you know, if smoke you smoke weed every day. If you look at that sign, actually, the E and smoke is it's upside down in the Auschwitz mm. one. And that was their little defiance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, All right, and with that, this has been uh, a special 420 episode of Grub Stakers. This has been uh, Pod Damn America. Don't get mad at Grub Stakers. (laughs) Joseph Vegula is like measuring the blood quantums of uh, the victims to see how much THC is in there. (laughs) He's like measuring how high they were. Um, Rate, review the show. We appreciate you. Uh, joining us on this uh, marijuana extravaganza. Join us next year for tour t- 420 Part 2 Electric Boogaloo. This time we're, it gets personal. Um, somebody somebody told the Nazis there's no lethal dose of marijuana and they were like, you want to bet? You want to see how much we can pump into the gas chamber? It's too late. These, so the SS guards, they have these big like industrial drums of like IG Farben made Visine to like drop in their <laughs> eyes so they can still see straight. <laughs> or like when Himmler comes, they all have to eye drop so he can't tell. <laughs> They're all high. Uh, and with that, this is Grub Stakers. Uh, my name is Yogi Paywall. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Andy Palmer, and I just want to say, I uh, I believe Albert Speer when he says he didn't inhale. 
used to suck dick for coke. I seen him. Yeah. Well, that's an addiction, man. You ever suck some dick for marijuana? Uh. That's good there. They uh they they set off a, a marijuana bomb in Hitler's bunker to try to chill him out. <laughs> <laughs> so they were shelling in the Battle of Berlin. That's right. <laughs> we wow. didn't do Operation Valkyrie. Oh fuck. Oh shit. No, I, we mentioned it in passing. That's how we did. I'm uh, stopping my recording. I think so. Are we done recording? Okay, I'm gonna stop recording. I'm stopped.